I think having someone around you that can continue growing you so that you can get there is really key. It's just one of those things that you become so much clearer later in your career. And the earlier you can get there, I think the better off you'll be. Hello, and welcome back to the Mental Sweet Spot podcast, where we share stories, tips, and strategies for coaching the mental game of softball. I'm Melanie Rushing, and I'll be joined shortly by Alicia Smith for another episode. Today, we discuss what to look for in a mentor so you can get the most out of your coaching career. Today's guest recently completed her doctorate of higher education as in charge of the educational programming for the National Fast Pitch Coaches Association. She's involved in choosing speakers for their convention and clinics, and she's helped assemble resources for coaches at all levels, including their mentorship program. She's had many experiences as a mentee herself in her 15-year collegiate coaching career. She learned from some of the sport's greatest, including multiple Hall of Fame coaches with extensive coaching trees that span the country. Now she flexes her mentor muscles in her work at the NFCA and as a new coach of her daughter's 6U team. Today we discuss the reasons she chose to study how female coaches rise through the ranks, some explanation why more males tend to apply for head coaching jobs, the power and influence of the mentors she's had in softball, how the NFCA's mentoring program is set up for coaches, getting the support and resources you need to work hard and take care of yourself, and building your own belief that we can do our job well. Without further ado, please welcome Director of Education and Programming for the NFCA, Dr. Joanna Lane. Welcome, Joanna. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. This is great. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I remember when uh, we were fortunate enough to be your guest on the dirt and I was walking around my house with my headphones on and I was so nervous. And I'm like, this is silly. Why am I so nervous? I can stand in front of people and talk and I'm just on the phone and I'm so (laughs) nervous. Uh, I really appreciate your time today. So we'll get right to it if that's all right with you. Absolutely. So Joanna, what first inspired you to pursue your degree and complete your dissertation on female coaching mentorship? Well, For me, the whole goal of a a terminal degree was a personal one. It it really didn't have anything to do with professional growth. And I'm sure there are ways that I use the degree a lot. And I'm sure there are ways that as my career progresses, I will continue to use that. But it was more about just having that personal goal. And, you know, I had a a great aunt who um, started her. She was born in 1920. And, and it was just, it was intriguing to me. And it was so important to her. And, you know, we spent a lot of time together when I was growing up. And I just, just thought it was something that was really unique that, that not a lot of people did. And, you know, I, I was an assistant coach at Northern Illinois, in 2005, when I started it for the first time, and then, you know, the coaching world is very transient. And I was there for two years and then moved on to South Dakota State. South Dakota State didn't have a program. So, you know, it went on the shelf. And then when I had the opportunity, you know, seven years after I started to to move on to Central Michigan University, and they had a program, I thought, why not? And uh, I was so fortunate to have the full support of of my boss and of my husband and really to make it go because it does become part of everyone's life. It takes a lot of time. Oh yeah. I just got my master's and it was the same thing. So thank you families as well. (laughs) Yes. So tell us a little bit more about your specific topic of your dissertation. Why did you choose that? What inspired you? And then what'd you learn from it? Well, I think for me, I read an article years ago and uh, it was it was written by Kate Fagan for ESPN. And I mean, I mean, years ago, and it was about uh, double standard and hiring of coaches, specifically women's basketball coaches. 
And it just got me thinking about what does that look like in practice? How does that happen? You know, what things transpire to get to that point? And as I was going through my courses, I didn't know exactly what the topic would be, but you know that there's just interest levels. And if you're going to spend this much time on something, you want it to be something that you're passionate about. And so women in coaching was always passionate to me. I never played for a female coach uh, growing up, and I always found that to be interesting. And as I started reading more and more studies and professors were telling me, you know, you need to find a hole, find a hole in the research that you can fill. Um, the current faculty athletic rep at Florida, he was at Texas A&M at the time, Michael Sagas is his name. He did a study that talked about how female assistant coaches were much less likely to apply for head coaching jobs than male assistant coaches. And even though female assistant coaches were much higher in numbers than male assistants, the script would flip and males were becoming head coaches at a faster rate and at a higher rate than their female counterparts. And he did a study on what factors female assistant coaches used to determine if they were ready to become a head coach. And the number one factor that they cited was the relationship with their own head coach. So their, their boss, their mentor. And if they had a high level relationship with their boss, they were much more likely to become a head coach. So I started thinking, I wonder if a female head coach is more likely to move their female assistants through the ranks compared to a male head coach? Or is there an effect on same-sex mentorship when it comes to assistant coaches becoming head coaches and, and really the creation of a coaching tree? And my first job was at Florida State University with Joanne Graff and, you know, Dr. Joanne Graff. And so that was another key piece of me wanting to do the dissertation because I, I saw what she did and I just thought it was amazing. And so she became a huge mentor for me. And I, I just wanted to know what, what do they do? What do these coaches who have extensive coaching trees, what are they doing that's different? And what does the mentorship from female to female, what does that bring to the table that male to female doesn't? So that is, that is the long version of kind of how it all came together. Oh, that is so cool. And it's such an important topic too. I think our sport, I like that our sport has male and female coaches, but of course we want more ladies in here. <laughs> so we want to keep that trend going even more, especially at the head coaching level. And I think it's really interesting to see how the best do it. So I love that you delved into like, what are the people with the best coaching trees doing? That's so cool. Yeah. And you know, I, I think it's important to, to say that our teams in general will learn best with the biggest variety of coaches that they can have, because everyone is different. Everyone is going to connect with someone that's different. Everyone is going to have a relationship with someone a little differently. And you look at the the best coaching staffs and they're diverse, whether they're diverse in race and ethnicity, whether they're diverse in personality, whether they're diverse in, you know, gender, it doesn't, it doesn't matter where the diversity comes from, but you have to be able to fill each other's strengths and weaknesses and balance each other. And, and I think that there are so many male coaches in our profession that are fantastic. You know, I can just start naming them off, but I, this is in no way 
shape or form a conversation about is it better to be a male or a female coach but it is a conversation about why do males pursue or why are males being hired at a higher rate than female assistants when there are more female assistants in the pool so it really just becomes a question and and i think that's the big thing because the common answer is males are more likely to move males you know will apply more females don't seek the jobs out and you know we used to take that at face value yep that's probably true and now we've we've just gotten a little bit more intelligent on how we look at that and it's it's different and everyone is different and females have unique sets of priorities that have to be met when you compare them to their male counterparts on what will will put them in line for a job you know talking to an administrator and said, you know, when, when you are hiring for a job, what's the breakdown of your applicant pool? And she said, immediately it's 80% male applicants, but of the 80%, probably 80% of those aren't qualified. So when you break down the qualified applicants, they're very similar, but females will not apply for a job in her opinion, unless they can check off every single line of both the required and also the recommended job responsibilities and experiences. Whereas a lot of male applicants will say, I can do that job and apply. And so I think that that's interesting too, because if your applicant pool has more males in it, then you're probably more likely to interview more males or to, you know, have, have some of those. And it would be, even if the role was reversed, it, it would be the same. So I thought that was very interesting as well. And, and getting into what those needs are for female candidates and how to nurture that and get those female candidates to a place where they feel like they can become a head coach, I thought was really important. That's a, that's a really interesting view, even on the coaching world, right? Because, you know, in, in my corporate position, I see the very, very similar trends and we very rarely get female applicants for any of our jobs, you know, in the corporate industry. So at least that, that I work in. So mm -hmm. um, I find that very interesting. Could you talk about, you, you've already talked about one of your mentors. What other types of mentors uh, have you had in your career? Sure. You know, I think, my first mentor was my mom. You know, my mom was an elementary school teacher. Um, she ran the city parks and recreation program in the summer, the city pool. She was my first boss. I was a lifeguard. And, um, you know, she was a, a, just an educator at, at the heart of what she did. And, you know, she um, always made it a mission to affect change, positive change, and, and really make a difference. She was in a, a Title I school district, and um, it was it was a passion for her to really help kids uh, who didn't have as many advantages coming through the public education system as some others in the same school district. So I learned a lot from her right away. Um, and then, you know, as I moved throughout college and grad school. And, you know, I, I ran into so many coaches. I played for Mark Montgomery, who's at Louisiana Tech now. He was at Georgetown College in Kentucky NAI school. I played for him at Georgetown and he was the first one that told me you should coach. And, and that was so powerful. It's such a powerful statement. I mean, the, the word coach is, it's such a term of honor. And it, when someone tells you, Hey, you can do this. I mean, it, it will open up so many worlds. And so I thought, why not? And I sent a, I wanted to do sport management. I sent a cold email to Joanne Graff and said, you know, 
hey, I would I would love to to come to Florida State and be a graduate assistant. And uh, she welcomed me with open arms and she had no reason to do so. None. Um, but as I talked to her, um, it was funny because she had said, I, I want to be able to help coaches who don't have the same background. And as I persisted through the profession, I understood what she meant coming from small town Ohio, playing at an NAI school, you know, in Georgetown, Kentucky. I was not going to have a pipeline to jobs. When when you look at the elite players, elite pedigrees in, in the, some of those coaching positions, without Joanne Graff and Florida State on my resume, I would have had a very different career trajectory. I fully believe that. And for Joanne, she recognized that and she wanted to bring people into the fold in her program that were different, that diversity piece I talked about. And, and she did, and it made a huge impact. And then on the, the sport management side, Cecile Renaud, who was a, you know, a Hall of Fame volleyball coach at Florida State turned professor, also Dr. Cecile Renaud, she guided me on the academic side and she was, she was on my doctoral committee. And so it was so fun to finish what I started with her and, you know, the fall of 2002 as a graduate student, you know, to the defense of my dissertation. And, and she has done so much with different organizations on leadership for girls and women and coaches. And I think it's, uh, it's an important piece. So she was huge. And then my first division one coaching position was at Northern Illinois University, uh, you know, and I got to work with Donna Martin and Dee Abrahamson and, you know, Dee's a soon to be three-time Hall of Famer going the Mid-American Conference Hall of Fame in the NFCA Hall of Fame this year and, you know, coached in the uh, World Series and also has, has been, you know, in the NCAA leadership and, and then as an administrator has that background as well. So I was just very fortunate to be surrounded by these women that pushed professional development, that pushed education, that challenged the status quo and challenged the thinking. And I remember Joanne Graff telling me my job for the day was to go to the Florida State Library and find a copy of Acosta and Carpenter's study. And I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what she was talking about. And uh, I also didn't know how to get it out of the library because I didn't take the wallet and I couldn't make photocopies. I threw that thing out the window and then ran after it and uh, and then <laughs> snuck it back in like two days later. Sorry, Florida State, but I didn't return it. <laughs> you returned it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it just, but things, you, you don't know what you don't know. And I think you can do better when you know more. And so finding a way to understand why these numbers are so staggering. Why is it that in, you know, the last published Acosta Carpenter study, only 43% of women's teams had a female head coach. When in the 70s, 90% had female head coaches. You know, why is it that in the coaches hired over the last 2000 Division I teams added, it's 65% of those teams have had a male head coach? Why? Why is that? Because I just think that when you have a role model, and when you have someone that can open up doors for you in a different way, it's, it's very meaningful. And I think that trying to understand more of that can help us, you know, get better and find a solution. And again, it doesn't mean that the males holding these positions aren't worthy. It doesn't mean they're ineffective. It doesn't mean anything other than those numbers are very staggering. And anytime, if you're data driven, anytime you see that, you, you want to just want to know why. Absolutely. And what I find is, <laughs> I think the coolest part of this whole story is that 
your entire path of finding these role models started because you had the boldness to cold email Joanne Graff when you quote unquote had no reason to do so. Yeah. And, and, you know, why did she answer? You know, and I, and I think about that a lot. And that's why I just I have so much respect for softball coaches because the longer I'm in the profession, they always answer. You know, I can I can call Pat Murphy and I can say, hey, there's a high school coach in Alabama that's really struggling. He'll pick up the phone and he'll call that person because that person called our office when they didn't know what to do. And that is so powerful. And when we talk to other sport organizations, they don't have that. And that's something that I want to make sure, and I think we all do, that we can hold on to as we continue to grow in contracts and salaries and the media landscape. And as our profession becomes more and more cutthroat externally, it's always been competitive internally, that we don't lose that ability to connect with one another and to grow one another. And it's, it's great on this side, leaving the coaching profession and coming on this side and talking to coaches every day. Our leaders are, are on board with that. And that's why the best of the best in our business continue to do clinics, to take part in mentoring programs, and really help grow the sport and, you know, totally unrelated, but that's why I think the, the passing of the fourth countable coach position is huge for our sport. You know, that vote will be April 17th and with the NCAA and you're looking at adding maybe potentially 300 new jobs in coaching for student athletes right now who don't see this as a career path. That's huge. That's an opportunity to get involved and, and to just become part of the profession of coaching after they're done playing. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm just thinking of my time at D1 with our volunteer coach. Like he loved it and he wanted to give us all, but when you're volunteering, you got to work another job and it's just so hard. So it's so cool to see that starting. Just hope all the schools can keep up because it's going to be great. Definitely. And I think that's what's so awesome about your your position and what you're trying to do with the NFCA. I mean, you've done so much uh, that we have seen, plus I'm sure so much that we haven't as well, just to grow the sport and grow the profession and grow the education. Right? And that's not targeted, obviously, to gender, but just in general to such an enormous ambassador for the sport. So that so first of all, as a coach, thank you for that. But I just think it's it's really impactful for what you guys are doing. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks for, you know, making a point to to recognize that because the the NFCA programming that is available is is phenomenal. And I hope a lot of our softball coaches continue to take advantage of that, specifically the mentoring program. You know, it continues to grow. We have a year round program as well as the event at convention. Um, it's tremendous. You know, it's it's a a program that's that's been copied now a couple of times and and that thrills me. I am not offended by it at all because it shows it's working and other organizations want to take a part of it and I'm happy to help anybody that wants to start because everybody needs a mentor. And when you listen to coaches, the elite coaches talk, sometimes they miss out on that because they have a very small circle of people who they can be vulnerable around because it will be used against them. You know, if somebody says they're trying to contemplate retirement and they talk about that publicly when recruiting rolls around the next year, it's, oh, I don't know if I'd go play for that person. You know, they probably won't be there. And and so you you don't talk anymore. And, you know, it's just as vital for our elite coaches to maintain mentoring relationships as it is for our brand new coaches. And most people recognize that. And I think the format that we have in pairing elite coaches and coaches who are just in the middle of their careers with those new coaches in a triangle format 
can really help everyone involved because it's not just top down. You can get a lot of bottom up mentoring as well. And I was, I was lucky enough to be accepted into that program. So I have, I have my triangle as well. And it's just phenomenal to, to be able to talk to these coaches and bounce ideas off. And we all ask our opinions of each other and we share so much and, and it's, it's just been an amazing experience for me. So I can only imagine, you know, multiply that by all the coaches that are in their own triangles. I also know Joni Frey, who is also in a, in a triangle. Mm -hmm. And she said that it was such a same thing, right? It's just, we, we do share. I think the sport is known for that. I've heard that from people outside, um, from an observation standpoint, how willing our coaches are to share in the sport. I just think it's a phenomenal experience. So I hope to be able to continue that as well. Oh, I'm glad. And, you know, there are some triangles that, you know, unfortunately don't take on the same life as others. And then that happens too. I mean, that's in every, every experience. And I will say that the, the mentorship relationships that can grow organically and that are, you know, the informal, those are so valuable. And I think that the more you can put yourself in a position to enter into those relationships, you should absolutely do so. But there's definitely a place for the formal um, pairings that, that have come across like this one. And, you know, hopefully coaches just, they're not afraid to ask and they're not afraid to be vulnerable and put themselves out there because that's where the growth starts. You know, you got to get outside that comfort zone and, and really push yourself and, and be prepared for an answer you may not like, but know that, you know, there's a reason you're getting that answer. And, and I think that you can see a lot of positive change when you take that approach. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Next question for you. Um, with all of the exposure you've had to all these coaches through not only your experience in coaching, um, but also in your, in your role as with the education for the NCA, what have you seen coaches struggle with the most when it comes to support? You know, I think the support piece is huge because it's so different for every individual, you know, and the, that's the heart of my, my dissertation as well is that, when when you are in a profession like coaching, it's a lifestyle and it's a lifestyle that will have an impact on everyone around you. So, you know, when I started coaching at 23, it was 22, whatever it was, it was uh, get to work first, leave last, and then five, eight hours later, you're back at your desk. And I loved it. I loved everything to do with it. And when I left coaching, it was, you know, I have a husband, I have two young daughters and there's just a, it's a different lifestyle, but the pressure to be first one in last one out was, was mine. It was no one else's pressure. It was my expectation of, of what I needed to do to be effective. And so my needs for support and my mentorship needs changed. And I think it's finding resources that have an impact on what you're doing. Um, we did a, a work-life family balance a session at convention and we went in and there was one male in the room. And so we, we started talking and um, introduced ourselves and then opened it up to everybody. He said, well, I'm going to go first because you're all probably wondering why I'm here. And uh, he said, my wife told me the only way I could come to convention was to come to this session. And uh, so, you know, we started laughing a little bit and, but it got so emotional so fast because he had a four-year-old son and he felt like he was spending more time on other people's kids than he was on his own. And he could do that because his wife was so good and he didn't know how to get better. And it was so eye-opening because 
it was a struggle that was real to him and he didn't know where to go. He didn't know what to find. And so before convention was over, I connected him with, you know, Jamie Pinkerton at Iowa state and Mark Montgomery at Louisiana tech. And, you know, they, they have multiple children and have been through it. Their children are older. And um, because it's sometimes it's not okay for a guy to say that, uh, you know, and that's wrong. They, they, sh- they have the same responsibilities as a parent, as a husband, whatever it might be. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I talk a lot, you're going to have to cut me off, but, but that's no. really the key of, that's really the key of what, what you're asking is, the needs are individual and you have to recognize those needs and you have to go find the resources for that. And that's where I think the best administrators excel because they, they figure that out too. You know, they figure out how to keep a Kelly Ford who is so successful and so good, but she's a single mom with a daughter who has unique needs and they've, they've met those and her program's excelling, her team's excelling. And, you know, she'll tell the story. It's not mine to tell, but she'll tell the story about how she did that and about how, you know, she was able to connect with her team. And uh, so throw her on your list to talk to because she's, she's phenomenal. And it's a, it's a really powerful statement on, you know, what you have to do to be successful because everyone's story is unique. Oh, that's so true. I really wanted to go to that session. I was sad. I could not, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's all about just getting it out there. And I love the idea of like finding the resources to help each other. What are some other resources that you've seen either administrators or the person themselves find to help them out? Oh, sure. Well, I think the, the, one of the key things in the dissertation that I thought was really interesting is differentiating between a mentor and a role model, because Mark Montgomery and some of the other mentors that I've had, they're not role models to me because we have different roles. Mark can't help me be a better mother, be a better wife. Mark, he can help me be a better partner. And I think that's important too. But there are things he can't tell me how to communicate with an administrator that we need permanent bathrooms because females and porta potties have unique challenges. And when you're in a room with, you know, male administrators, that can be a really difficult conversation. He can't help me with that conversation. You know, there, there's nothing that he has experience wise to add to that. <laughs> and so I think it's important to have as many mentors as you can, but you have to have role models and role models are the people who can help you with your specific challenges. I did a diversity podcast earlier this week. It will air in April 3rd, I think. And Sharonda McDonald talked about how when she is in her, was interviewing for head coaching positions, she felt that she needed to make sure that her hair looked a certain way because there was a connotation that came with being a black woman having curly hair on a job interview. Well, I can, I can have as much coaching experience in the world as a female head coach, but I can't help her with that. I can't talk with her through that because that's not my life. That's not something that I have any experience with. But Tyra Perry at Illinois did. And Sharonda and Tyra connected and talked a lot about that. And it's powerful. And it's it just shows that there are unique challenges that every demographic, every subset faces that you have to be able to have a role model for. So that resource is huge. And then the other side is having a mentor that's as similar as can be to your supervisor. If 90% of athletic directors are going to be older white men, then you need role models 
if you are in that category, or you need a mentor if you're not, that reflects that because you need that perspective. You need to be able to have that conversation. So I think being able to sort that out and then being able to ask for help. And I think that's the hardest part. We, we talk about it in a lot of things, whether it's mental health, whether it's time away. Amy Hogue is so funny. You know, she says, I have family all around me at Utah and I don't ask for help until I'm already drowning. And she said, I can't figure out how to do that. I, I have to be at the past the end of my rope before I ask for help. And so it's it's not even about availability, you know, and people that are around you. It's about recognizing when you need it and, and using the community. And that's that's one of the barriers that women have for moving up the ladder, so to speak. Once women have specifically women with families, once they have recognized and created that support community, they don't want to leave it. And so you know, you hear coaches that if I get out, I'm not leaving this community because this is this is my system. And if they already have created that system, they need as much assurance as they can that they're going to be able to replicate that when they go to another job. And I think that's the difference sometimes with male counterparts. And, you know, I, th- I think the term is second shift parenting, specifically for people with kids, you know, the the female is generally the one that makes the doctor's appointments, that realizes what paperwork's do at school, that sets up things for field trips. And because that second shift parenting is on the female, it's a lot easier for the male to want to move because those things aren't taken into consideration at the same level as they are for the female. I'm sure that's not always true. I'm sure there are families and that's reversed. You know, my husband would say he does just as much as I do. He probably does. Uh, But, you know, I think some of those things are unique when it comes to pursuing other positions and trying to climb that ladder is there are so many more checkboxes for women than there are for men. Generally speaking, this is a huge generalization. Can't say that enough, but And those come into play for a lot of people. And that's something administrators, if they're aware of, it can really give them an upper hand when it comes to identifying and recruiting coaches because they can meet those needs and be proactive in that. That's huge. And I totally get the checkbox thing. (laughs) I applied to 70 something jobs going from a GA to another position. Man, totally agree. I was like, well, I shouldn't apply for that one. Okay, I'll be brave. Yeah. <laughs> totally get yeah, it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jenna, what else do you feel is, is missing for coaches? You know, we we talk about work-life balance a lot, and I don't care what your personal situation is. If you are single, if you have children, if you care for aging parents, if you have pets at home, it, everybody has external responsibilities. And everybody has hobbies or interests outside of softball. It doesn't matter who you are. And yet sometimes we pigeonhole certain demographics and certain populations. And, you know, I talked to um, the LSU staff in a work-life balance podcast one time, and, and I asked Lindsay Leftwich specifically, how hard is it for you? Howard, married with kids. Lindsay, um, you're not. Beth, married with kids. Do you feel like you get stuck at the office or picking up the slack or um, and everybody started laughing and they said, we can't get her out of the office. And I think the the younger and earlier you realize that you will be a better coach, the more you take care of yourself and that you can't feel guilty 
for leaving the office for an hour to go get a massage for doing some different things. Um, Shonda Stanton told me that she signed her coaching staff up for group tennis lessons one year because she, they had to do something else. They had to be able to, to do something else for a little while to stay in the frame of mind that they needed. And I think that's relatively a new way of thinking. I think a lot of the old guard, so to speak, of coaches that is so foreign to them. And I understand why, because they, they shattered ceilings and they paved ways that we would never have the opportunities to have without that trenches mentality. And we also have seen a lot of those coaches leave and suffer burnout and not be able to do things that they wanted to do personally. And so I think that taking care of yourself and whatever that means to you, it's different for everybody is really big. And I think that that's something we have to be aware of when it comes to setting up recruiting calendars and when it comes to passing legislation for, you know, dates and recruiting and on-campus work. And because the flip side argument that people want to make all the time is, well, if you don't want to work, don't work, but don't tell me I can't. And that, (laughs) that's not the point. You know, that's, that's not the point. The point is that when you get people that are as impassioned as the typical coaches, um, there, there is no want to, it's, it's just gets deeper than that. It's a, it's a need to, and that's not good for anybody. And so I think being able to, to take care of yourself, being able to connect with other people, being able to use coaches in other sports and, you know, find the ways that you can really help yourself focus on those best practices, identify those best practices, I think there's a lot of opportunity that comes from that, but it can also be scary because a lot of times that's different than what the culture says should be going on. Yeah, I could relate to everything you've been talking about, work-life balance, spending more time with your kids on the field than maybe your own child. And I'm only a high school coach, right? So my season is three months. No, no, not only. No, no, don't do that. I tell her that all the time. You have have Uh -uh. so many people that need you, right? And you're dealing with parents and you're dealing with, uh uh-uh. No yeah. more than that. Okay, sorry. I'm a high school coach. I don't have, I am not, it is not my full-time job. I do also have another full-time job outside. Mm-hmm. So I guess there's that added responsibility. For sure. And um, I think that it's so important that you surround yourself with people for support, mentors. Uh, Mel is an, an unbelievable, you know, support for me as well, because you have, you just have to have that for, in what I've realized over, this is what, my 22nd year coaching is that everything that you're talking about, um, taking care of yourself first is basically what you're saying, right? Mm-hmm. Is that that's how you are a better role model and coach for your kids. And I think sometimes it seems counterintuitive, but I think I've really like recognized that and realized that over the last few years that the best way, the best way for me to be the best for them is so I can take care of myself and I can take time away when I need to, to spend time with my own family and do those types of things. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. So what other tips uh, for getting the support you need in order to build that positive culture of confidence and resilience would you have for our listeners? The confidence piece was by far and away the biggest piece of assistant coaches pursuing a head coaching opportunity. And, you know, the term that I use in my dissertation over and over is self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is your personal belief that you can do a job well. So if my self-efficacy is high when it comes to coaching, then coaching is going to be 
a different type of profession for me than my self-efficacy in being a research scientist. And so when coaches identify what they believe they can do well and we cultivate that, it makes all the difference in the world. And the coaches I spoke to and the stories they tell, it's, it's so empowering because there are clearly defined moments that triggered a, I can do this. Every single one of them. It didn't matter if that came in 1972 and they've now turned out so many other coaches or if that moment came last week when you know their head coach told them they had done something really well. I mean, it, it was amazing, that confidence piece, and everything came back to it. And I thought that that was extremely important because the next question is how have you developed confidence, right? And, and you think about it from a coaching standpoint, and I always go to hitting. I go to hitting immediately. And maybe it's because I was a hitting coach for the bulk of my career. But the, the question is a confident hitter is a great hitter. And you can have an ugly swing and have great stats. And, you know, you can you can do all these things. And so how do you get that confidence piece? And, again, it's personal. Some people get confidence because they're overprepared. They're at the T all the time. Other people get confidence because of the mental training that they do. And you guys are so good at that. And you can, you can probably fill in the confidence piece a lot more than I can. But that was a huge part of the findings of the dissertation. And you have to get in that place where your boss is building you up every day. And I think sometimes people are in work environments that are toxic and they don't even know it. And until you change jobs or until you have a different experience, you have no idea. And it's it's something that is is just far and away above all other components when it comes to pursuing those those head coaching opportunities or or taking those other opportunities. And so I think having someone around you that can continue growing you so that you can get there is really key. And then the persistence piece is unique because that's different for everybody. You know, some people get into coaching and it's the only thing they want to do. Other people get into coaching because they didn't know what else they wanted to do. Some people find something in the middle, but you know, a lot of it is the factors all come back to that confidence piece. And a lot of times when you talk to young assistant coaches, they don't know that yet. And they're not sure what that even is. And that's where the high achieving mentors become invaluable because they're shaping those assistant coaches before those assistant coaches even know. Um, and that's a, just a really unique piece when it comes to the impact of mentorship and really what it can do for a career. And I think it's often underestimated for female coaches, specifically as it relates to networking. Um, you know, and it's just one of those things that you become so much clearer later in your career. And the earlier you can get there, I think the better off you'll be. Well, Joanna, thank you so much for coming on. This is such, I think, an important topic that not enough people are really grasping onto yet. I think we're getting there. I think you really got the momentum rolling with your mentorship program with the NFCA. Uh, for our listeners, I will link to all of that. If you're not an FCA member now, you should be. There's so much good stuff on there, but particularly the mentorship program. Uh, we try to make that a big part of our programs too. So thank you for that. 
You're welcome. And, you know, for those of you that are finding yourselves as the mentor and, and you're really working hard to help those grow through the profession, um, you know, being intentional about your relationships and being accessible, being open and honest and sharing your own personal struggles, those are huge. Uh, because anytime you can validate feelings, it matters. And anytime you can can let those assistant coaches grow and uh, learn how to be true to their authentic self while at the same time taking the lessons they've learned from you, it's it's huge. And um, really, that's the backbone of our profession, our, our matriarchs and our leaders and our mentors. And um, there's a lot of responsibility there, uh, but there should also be a lot of pride there. And we're just very thankful for those who step up and lead the way and continue to prepare this next generation of coaches. And that is a wrap on today's episode. To put all this into action, we've got another coaching challenge for you. Figure out what you need. With 99% of our mental and emotional energy being spent on our teams, it's no wonder so many coaches burn out. We live in a culture where working harder and longer is applauded, but what's the cost? When you neglect your own needs as a person, you're ultimately not helping your team either. We of course want to do all we can to help our teams, and a big part of that is making sure we take care of ourselves. That's how we guarantee that we bring our best every day. So let's see how many coaches commit to this one. (laughs) Your challenge for this week is to figure out what you need. You may need one full day off each week to decompress from softball. Maybe you just need some time each day to spend with your loved ones. Taking a break does not mean you're neglecting coaching. It means you'll be able to give more once you're refreshed. If this idea of mentorship and taking care of yourself sounds appealing to you, you're in the right place. It's such an important and needed aspect of coaching we've incorporated into all of our programs. Through group membership and our Dream Team Blueprint, to our higher level masterminds, to one-on-one mentorship through consulting, we've got you covered. The doors will reopen soon for our Dream Team memberships and we'll be accepting applications to our higher level programs this summer. In the meantime, join us and other coaches like you in our free Mental Sweet Spot Coaches Clubhouse on Facebook. There you can test your mentorship muscles and seek support yourself. To join, simply head to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash mental sweet spot coaches. And that is it for today. Next week, we'll be back with our mastermind catching up with Alicia and Wilma after spring break. We'll chat about how they're working on getting buy-in from their assistants and how break helped them feel less overwhelmed and ready to attack the season. Thanks again for joining us. Have a good one.